You're listening to Back to the Light with J.D. Rieger. Hey everybody, welcome to yet another episode of Back to the Light. I am J.D. Rieger. This week on the show, I'm talking to the music writer and author Stephen Dusner. You've seen his articles in Pitchfork, Uncut, and numerous big-time publications. And his new book, Where the Devil Don't Stay, Traveling the South with the Drive-By Truckers, is out now and getting excellent reviews. You can find out more about the book and Stephen at stephendusner.com. That's Stephen with a P-H, Dusner, D-E-U-S-N-E-R.com. Let's get to our conversation. Stephen, thanks for joining me on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure. Sorry, just knocked my earbud out. <laughs> no worries. I know you've got the new book out and I want to get to that, but I kind of want to ask about your life a little bit before that and i know you grew up in mcnary county uh, was that selmer proper yes that was selmer proper um yeah right in the right in town i'm interested because a good chunk of my wife's family is from there and i also have a lot of friends oh really yeah and i also have a lot of friends from corinth which is right in that in that same vicinity also yeah i probably played soccer with uh with some of those friends then I, we, we both my brother, my younger brother and I did soccer down there. And, uh, uh, I, although I guess it's it, me playing soccer, that's kind of a, a charitable, charitable description of what I did. I just kind of ran up and down the field kind of haphazardly. And, uh, I think I scored a goal for my own, my own team. So, uh, I was one of those kids. Well, that's one more goal than I scored. <laughs> I'm kind of curious what it was like growing up. I mean, this was the eighties, pre-internet and everything what was it like for a kid coming of age in rural Tennessee how how did you find out about cool stuff you know a, a lot of that was just listening to the radio um and paying attention to what my older brother Edwin was listening to um because you know McNary County didn't get um cable or MTV until sort of late in the 80s or like maybe right at the height of hair metal um and so I kind of still have this like weird uh, affection for really cheesy hair metal like Poison and Warrant and stuff like that because you know when that's what was on when MTV came to town and and it was just like anything I was gonna I was gonna love anything that they played um, and I had a friend who lived in Selmer and moved to Jackson Tennessee which was like very metropolitan by comparison. And I remember his name's Matt and Matt, um, you know, when I would go up and like spend the night up at his house, like he always had this, like these weird records, like the house Martins and this, you know, Sinead O'Connor's Lion and the Cobra and stuff like that. And, and, uh, you know, I would just dub those from, from him and that, you know, it, it was very exotic for, for McNary County to, to, to know who, Sinead O'Connor was at that time. Um, and, you know, then I discovered like 120 minutes and stuff like that. Uh, you know, these kind of weirder aspects of VH1 and MTV that if I stayed up late enough, I could, I could kind of watch. So, um, but I do feel like I had to be a lot more proactive. It just wasn't something that was available. It had to be searched out. And, 
And uh, a lot of that stuff was kind of a good means to just like distinguish myself and, uh, you know, apart from other people and, and kind of uh, be a misfit and, and, and be, be an, uh, not an outcast, but by any means, but, you know, just kind of a, I was kind of a nerdy kid. And uh, that was kind of a, a nice world to ret- retreat into. So I really, gravitated towards a lot of those weirder bands at the time. And, you know, it was also the satanic panic. It was right at the height of the satanic panic. So there was a lot of worry about some of these like weird bands that I was, I was picking up at the, uh, at the Camelot music and the Jackson mall. So what made you decide to move to Memphis? Was it college? Yeah, it was college. I, um, I went to Rhodes and got there right around the time that Adam's house cat broke up. So they had been playing. That's the pre truckers band that Mike Cooley and Patterson hood were in. And they had been playing frat parties at Rhodes uh, the year before I got there. And, and we did not overlap at all, but uh, yeah, so that's, that's why I went, I went, I went to, to, to school there. I read in your bio thing that you were studying in school fiction writing. What made you transition to criticism and, you know, being a rock writer. <laughs> it, it was all just opportunity. Um, you know, I, when I graduated college and I was still living in Memphis and, you know, there's not a lot that you can do immediately out of college with, uh, with that degree. Uh, but I, you know, I was at a signing um, at Burke's bookstore. I don't remember who the signing was for. But by that time, I was friends with uh, the co-owner, uh, Corey Messler, and he just pointed out, hey, that's the book reviews editor over there. His name's Frederick Keppel. And I just kind of like screwed up my courage and went over and introduced myself to him and asked if I could write book reviews. And I wrote for him for about five or six years. Uh, that was my first gig. And it just kind of it, the opportunity was there. And I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed sort of having something to bounce off of rather than trying to create something whole cloth. Um, so that's kind of how I got into just like freelance writing because there seemed more opportunities to, uh, there seemed more outlets, uh, local outlets. Um, and I eventually got a job at Towery Publishing uh, when it was on the corner of McLean and Union, and they had that really ugly silver statue out front. Um, and the guy in the cubicle across from me was a guy named Chris Harrington, and we became friends. We kind of bonded over music, and he left there to to, to be the music editor at the Flyer and asked if I wanted to write music reviews. And yeah, I want free CDs in the mail. I want to hear stuff before anybody else. Like, I want my name in the paper. Uh, you know, and somewhere down, down that list of perks was like, they'd actually pay me. Um, so yeah. And so that's kind of, that's how I transitioned from sort of book reviews into, um, into music reviews. My journey to the flyer was exactly the same. I worked with Chris at warehouse (laughs) music. And then when he took over for Mark Jordan, I guess he asked me if I wanted to help out with writing. So it, 
Oh, that's cool. It's yeah. interesting to me because, you know, I was a journalist for a while, too, but I was never able to really get out of the regional uh, landscape. You you write for Pitchfork, you write for Uncut, lots of big time stuff, in my <laughs> view, anyway. I know this is kind well, of a ridiculous you. question, but how did you do it? I mean, I think a lot of it was that I had to get out of Memphis. Uh, my wife, uh, I met her at Rhodes. And she is an art historian, very, very talented, very good at her job. And she went to grad school at the University of Delaware. So in 2001, um, we moved to Newark, Delaware. And I kept writing for those Memphis papers, but I kind of felt like I'm not in that community, that local community anymore. So I, uh, I had to, to sort of cast a slightly wider net. And, and I remember Pitchfork had the only one I've ever, I know of in history, an open call for writers. And I was like, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to put my name in there. And I wrote a review of Lucero's that much further West and sent it in. This was six months after it had been released. So uh, I kind of thought they're not going to care. And you know, I'd say about three or four months later, after I'd kind of given up, I got a, I got a phone call at like 10 o'clock at night from, from Ryan Schreiber, you know, saying, yeah, we really liked it. You should, you should write for us. Um, which is one of those stories that I tell people. And I realize that's, that's like the most useless story because it's like, there's no lesson there for me to impart to, to a younger writer. It's just kind of like, just stumble into it. Like I did. Um, but yeah, so, and we moved around for my, for my wife's job and everywhere we moved, I tried to pick up at least one local outlet. Um, you know, we moved, we lived in DC for a couple of years. And so I wrote for the Washington Post Express. I wrote for the Village Voice when we lived in New York. I never really wrote for anybody in Chicago because that's a really kind of a closed circuit town. You're telling me, buddy. <laughs> I never could find an outlet in Chicago. Never. And, uh, and so, and now we moved to Bloomington. And so, um, I write for a couple of places around here. And, uh, yeah, that's, it's, it's, it's been a, a journey. I feel like one of those, uh, blobs that you roll downhill and it keeps collecting random junk. And, and that's kind of my career. A lot is said about the decline of, you know, journalism papers are shutting down or decreasing in size. How has that affected your career? You know, it, it definitely has shrunk the pool of outlets. Um, it's, it's, it's definitely created uh, a situation where there are a lot more writers competing for a lot fewer gigs. Um, but you know, as somebody who, you know, with my experience in Memphis, with the commercial appeal and the flyer really wanted to have some sort of local presence, there's not really a way to do that, uh, as much anymore. I mean, uh, you know, the, the commercial appeal doesn't even, I don't even think it has any local freelancers, or at least it doesn't have any local book reviews for, uh, I think they use the chapter 16, 
which is a great side. That's nothing against them, but it's just like that kind of local pool uh, kind of dried up. And, and so I think a lot of the publications that could sustain a writer, uh, they're just not there anymore, or they're using uh, these, these, these bigger services. And uh, so I think it's pushed a lot of it online. So I would say the bulk of what I write is online these days. Um, actually, that's not true because I do a lot of work for Uncut, which is a British publication. And the the British market is almost like it, it's absurdly print oriented. It's it's great. I, I love getting uh, a nice big Uncut in the mail and flipping through an actual music magazine again. It's a little bit frustrating for me because a lot, you know, my friend, uh, you wrote an article about my friend Janet in Uncut and I was not able to read it short of actually finding the magazine itself. <laughs> uh, well, I'll send you, I'll send you that article, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's just it. It's, it's like, it's that stuff doesn't go really go up online. And, uh, but I also find that it's, it's odd. There are a lot of like people who buy those magazines and collect them and, and, and like they would music books. And so they've got a library of, of these, um, which, is kind of it's kind of fun at least on my end to kind of go back through old issues and things like that all right well i want to switch gears now to the truckers how how did you discover them well it was right after i i moved away from memphis as a matter of fact um you know i was living in in newark delaware i'd had this kind of bad job at a credit card company that and i had to drive up i-95 to get to work every day, which is like a really crowded highway. It's horrible. And it was like, the whole thing was making me like physically ill. I, I was like, it, it was, it was having a, a uh, it, it was really grinding on me. Um, and I remember, I think it was right after I quit that job that I found uh, a copy of decoration day at this local record store in Newark. And just was like, yeah, I've heard a lot about it. Actually, Chris Harrington had talked to, to me about them as well. Um, and so I just bought this record kind of un, unheard. And, um, you know, it wasn't an, an immediate thing, but it was something that I gravitated to a lot. And I listened to a lot. And, and it was really profound to be so far from home and to hear songs that mention places I knew or that seem to be about people that I knew, even just having an accent, like a, like a, a, like not just a, a broad Southern accent, but a recognizable Southern accent, like even more like a North Alabama mid Southern accent on some of those songs was really profound at that time for me. Um, And I just tried to cover them whenever and wherever I could. So uh, I wrote, I think, a lot of the Pitchfork reviews for a long time there and and a couple of other places I, I got to write about them. I actually got to play a few shows with the Truckers when I was in the band Glossary. Um, oh, yeah. I, I can't remember how many, but there's there's one in particular that we played together at the Mercy Lounge in Nashville that really comes to mind. I guess this would have been about 2005. Oh, wow. Yeah, we, we had... 
uh, some people, some common people in our management teams or whatever. It's an icky thing to say, but <laughs> I, I'm just curious how those shows went. Like what was, what was it like opening or playing with them? Like probably maybe peak era. Like uh, they've got Sean in the band and Jason still in the band. Yeah. I mean that show at the mercy lounge that I have a clear memory of is I mean, that, that show was bananas packed as I recall. And they were, they were nice to us. You know, we didn't hang out a lot or anything. They didn't, they didn't hang out in the, in the back room a lot, as I recall, but they were, they were very polite. There's a funny thing. Our manage somebody who I won't mention by name in our mag- management team, we were asking them like, how come we don't get to play more shows with the truckers? If you know, if you know them so well or whatever. And they were like, those guys party really hard. Like, we don't know if, if, if you guys can take it. Is, wow is that a was that a fair assessment of them at the time because i i really have no idea personally i mean yeah i think that was that's pretty fair i mean i think that was you know them kind of getting to a point where they could kind of realize some of their rock and roll dreams and and things were not just not just uh they weren't just hot for them, but it was busy in a way that seemed sustainable. So I imagine they thought they had arrived. And so it was just like, you know, I, I would imagine, yeah, they'd be pretty hard partying. Uh, yeah, that, that sounds about right. <laughs> for better, or for worse. Before doing the book, how much of a personal relationship did you have with the band? You know, I'd met Patterson a few times and interviewed him a few times. And I think he knew my name. I think he knew I was from McMurray County. Uh, I'd written, I guess around the time uh, Go-Go Boots came out, I'd written a piece um, for the Washington Post Express about uh, his relationship with McNeary County. That was when the Wiggy Mater Wear came out. And so I was asking him about that. And so he knew I was from McNeary County, uh, he knew my name cause I had written about them for pitchfork a lot. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I assume in retrospect that they must've thought highly enough of me to sort of cooperate with the book that I wrote. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it was like, a. I think they knew who I, who I was. Uh, we hadn't like partied or anything like that. We, we were just like more like a, a passing kind of professional relationship, I guess. What kind of access to the band were you given? Did you just conduct straightforward interviews? Did you hang out? What was the process like? It was just a lot of interviews. I mean, they were really, really generous and really trusting. Um, and I mean, I felt like I had all the access of an authorized biography, but it is not an authorized biography. I didn't have to run it by them before I went to print. I didn't have to to get their approval on anything. They just trusted me to do that. So I wrote, I mean, I must have talked to Patterson altogether more than 24 hours uh, total, um, just a lot of interviews. I did two or three long interviews with Cooley in Birmingham, who, as it turned out, like right as I was sort of submitting this 
book to the press or to the, the proposal to the press, I was at my mom's in Birmingham and I was out on a walk and this guy jogged past in a nine thirty club t-shirt. And I was like, Hey, great shirt. And he kind of flips his hair out of the way and it's Cooley. And he lives like right near my, or he used to live right near my mom in Birmingham. Um, such that he was jogging near her house that day. And it's just uh, the coincidence of that. Uh, but yeah, that was, he was probably the only one I, I Patterson was probably the only one I'd really talked to, but the other guys were super generous and warm and, and, and welcoming. So the book is called where devils don't stay traveling the South with the drive by truckers. And I just wanted to mention the name in the interview to be sure. Thank you. <laughs> how how did the idea of using uh, the cities that the band had relationships to as a structure, how did that develop? You know, I think a lot of that comes from having moved around a lot myself and sort of being this person who considers himself a Southerner um, who was not in the South any longer. And I think that kind of primed me for 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 approaching it like that but the the book actually started when my wife and i were living in england um and we were in this kind of weird lodge on the campus of the university of birmingham and we were all by ourselves this sort of the university felt like they had kind of forgotten about us so you know we were just kind of there without any kind of host or anything and i just remember having doing a lot of walking in Birmingham and listening to uh, a lot of music, a lot of music that was new, but also a lot of truckers because it reminded me of home. And I think it was in those walks around Birmingham listening to them that I started to realize like, Oh, this is a Memphis song. This is a Shoal song. This is an Athens song. Like these different, places that kept popping up and started to sort of realize that that's a really important part of what they do. And that's something that's very distinctive in their catalog because nobody else is documenting Selmer, Tennessee. Nobody else is documenting the Shoals. Nobody else is, is really writing about these places, at least not the way that they are. And that's kind of when I thought like, that seems like a, a really good approach that you could take as opposed to something that's chronological, that would be, you know, really bound up in this timeline that is interesting, but for a band that, you know, they're not the Rolling Stones. They're not the Beatles. Like I I don't want to have, you know, the sort of typical, band bio setup where you know you start in their hometown when they're kids and things like that like that stuff is interesting but i kind of wanted to get to the good stuff sooner so i think that's that you know it, it did end up seeing being sort of generally chronological but i think that kind of let me allowed me to get at what makes them so distinctive and what makes them so special in a way that i think doing a timeline or a standard rock bio wouldn't have allowed me time out before we get back to steven dusner i must remind you that back to the light records recording artist jeremy scott has a new single and video out called fred neil armstrong the full album bear grease comes out january 28th you can find more information and pre-order the vinyl at backtothelight.net 
I particularly enjoyed the Memphis chapter because I grew up in Memphis in the 80s and early 90s. So like all the stuff that you touch on, <laughs> you know, Mayor Harrington getting elected and Ferguson's Cafeteria, which I went to a bunch of times because my, oh, my family, my family owned a blueprint company just around the corner from there. So I went there with my grandfather oh, wow. and my mom all the time. But I think it was gone by the time I got there. So it might have been. Why do you think Memphis was so particularly soul crushing for those guys when they lived there? <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of it is dumb. I mean, I think a lot of it is when they the point in their lives and the career, their careers when they moved to Memphis because they were in a band called Adam's House Cat. They had been in that band for five or six years by then, and they had started it out with these big, big dreams. I mean, everybody starts a band with big dreams, but they, they were like, you know, they had connections to the music industry and the shoals. Patterson's dad is David hood. Who's bass player on all these amazing R and B recordings. Like, you know, it, they wanted to put the city back on the map and it never happened. Uh, the city was not always hospitable to them. Um, and so when they moved to Memphis, they thought, well, we're just going to start, we're going to, we're going to make it in Memphis. And I think that's kind of foolhardy too. Cause I think in, at that point in Memphis, there weren't, there, there wasn't really, um, an infrastructure to really break a band as big as they wanted to, to be. Um, and I think there was a lot of industry activity, but nothing that kind of really, um, made much of a, an impact nationally or internationally. I mean, I think what the gun was it the gun bunnies from little rock kind of had a similar sound and, a and, uh, you know, they, they got a little traction, um, you know, and, and Patterson even talked about playing one of those, um, producer showcases down on Beale and being blown off the stage by DDT, the, the Dickinson brothers band at the time. And, kind of realizing like their moment was over. Like as soon as he, like those guys blew them off the stage, they were like, yeah, this is not going to work. And uh, there's something that I like to call Memphis luck, which is um, the like basically just having the worst luck in Memphis. <laughs> it's not really a, an involved concept, but um, it, just being in a place that, that, you know, just kind of beats you down a little bit and, 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 uh, and still loving that place. And I, I always think that that's, that's kind of what was happening with them. Memphis luck. It was just, it was just a, the city was just going to be mean to them and, 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 and they were still going to like appreciate that city on, on some level. So. I think almost every Memphis musician can relate to that feeling at some time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm not even a musician, and and I've had my my share of Memphis luck. It's it's just uh, there's just something about that place that feels like some hard experiences are going to happen there, and yet you're going to move past them. Just I don't know. I love that city. I just uh, as it was good to me, it was bad to me, but it was like I I love it. I I I love being down there. You mentioned a few times in the book that that both every or everyone acknowledges that the name drive-by truckers is not a great name. <laughs> so, I mean, in your mind, what's bad about it? 
I mean, as somebody who came of listening age during the uh, alt-country movement, when there was a lot of sort of like pun-driven names or just kind of like kind of hokey humor. The name Slobberbone comes to mind. And I, lo- I love that band. <laughs> yeah. Like all caps love that band. But that name is terrible. Yeah, it's it's that's another bad name. Um, you know, and you just had a lot of like hokey, like there was a band BR549 that was named after the license played on hee haw or something like that and they had all these songs about like the cast of andy griffith show doing a lot of drugs and having orgies and it's just like i don't know corny hick humor ironically and so yeah that's kind of what i think of when i think about the drive-by truckers it's just like it's kind of of its era it's of this kind of like like you know, bad country puns and things like that. Although I guess it's not really a pun. It does it kind of aspires to be a, a wordplay, but it's not really. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I, I get the, I get that it's descriptive and maybe that's why as bad as it is, it's, it's stuck and it's hard to imagine them with another name is because it really does kind of collide these two aspects of their sound and their vision of, of having something that's kind of violent, but really grounded in reality of hip hop storytelling with this kind of trucker country, seventies uh, CB culture kind of aspect of their sound. Like it's, it's colliding these two different worlds and kind of in the middle is, is where they are. So I get why it works, but it's kind of one of those things where when I say the band that I worked on and wrote a book about to like civilians who might not know who they are, it's kind of like, oh, they're called the drive-by truckers. And, and you know, let me, but, but they're really good, you know. Um, I don't know. That's probably being too hard on that name. Uh, but, but yeah, it's, it could be better. <laughs> as, as a band, they're a lot more literate than that name would imply. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think they've, they have acknowledged there's some problematic aspects of it in terms of hip hop and race where they're sort of, I don't want to say appropriating, but they're sort of borrowing this, this, this phrase that has to do with black violence and that had been used at the time as, um, in these very sort of, uh, racist politics about, you know, warning people of drive-bys and things like that. So I think they acknowledge that, um, you know, and, and, but it at least points to this larger world beyond just like the sort of very white milieu that a lot of Southern rock fans might, might uh, stick to. It, It does point to a larger South, a larger world than just Southern rock. You touched on this a bit earlier, but I want to ask again anyway. Does did the fact that the band has ties to and wrote about your hometown did that really deepen your relationship to the band? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, hearing the sort of what I call the Buford Suite, the sort of the three songs about the Southern Mafia, the Southern, um, the State Line Gang. Uh, which there's three songs. It's um, the boys from Alabama, 
cottonseed and the Buford stick roughly about uh, my neck of the woods and uh, the sheriff that we had in McNary County named Buford Pusser. The fact that anybody even knew who Buford Pusser was, uh, was astounding to me. And they had written these great rock songs about him in a way that wasn't just blind worship, hero worship. It's, it's very complicated and contradictory and complex. And like, just to, to have my hometown portrayed that way was really profound. And then, you know, to hear the wig he made her wear, which was literally about my neighbors, like that, that, that murder happened in the house next door to mine. Um, just to hear him, like to hear Patterson describe a, a community's reaction to these secrets being, uh, confessed in court and realizing like, yeah, I recognize that aspect of my town. Like I recognize that aspect of these people that I knew, you know, it was, I, I keep coming back to the word profound, but it really was. It was just like, you know, to put it a slightly different way, having come from Memphis and having moved to these larger cities, I always felt a little bit out of place because I wasn't, I didn't go to journalism school. I, 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 you know, I didn't have an intern at, internship at spin or Rolling Stone or, you know, I, I was kind of, I felt like an outsider, especially when, you know, a lot of the band, you know, that's when like the Brooklyn scene was coming up with the strokes and, and the yeah, yeah, yeahs. And, um, so to have a band that was apart from all that, that was Southern and that was writing about these Southern places it made me feel like um, there was a part of this that was this industry or this, this scene or whatever you want to call it. That was, that was for me that I, that I, that I had a place um, writing about music. So. I don't know if, if we would consider this a snub per se, but I, Uh but I couldn't help noticing in the select discography, no Isbell solo records. Oh, yeah. I mean, I felt like if I do Isabel solo records and he's got a lot, then I've also got to do Shauna records. I've got to do John Neff records. I've got to do, you know, all these, like there's such a, a vast network of, of bands that have passed through the truckers or musicians who have been members, even if just for a show and it's like, okay, where do you draw the line? And, you don't think Isabel is at a higher echelon than some of those guys? Yeah, but the book itself, I think the central relationship, the central story is about Patterson and Cooley. So it made sense to me at the time that it should be Trucker's records and Patterson records and Cooley records and, and cut it off there. Should I have added Isabel? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Um, I have what I would describe as unpopular opinions about his catalog. Ooh, ooh, what are those? <laughs> like, I mean, I love Southeastern and I, I love reunions and some of his early stuff. It, 
has some amazing stuff on it. Uh, but the one that I think a lot of people gravitate towards is something more than free. And I'm on record as not liking that album. I, I, I don't care for it. I think it's kind of weak. I think it's a little timid. I feel like right after that, you get the Nashville sound and you get white man's world and you get this person who's using his songwriting to really challenge and, and subvert certain conventions of Southern identity and of, of country conventions and things like that. And that album is just kind of like a very pretty singer songwriter record where, I mean, everything's okay, but it's just kind of like, it, it, it needs some force. And I realize that that's not what a lot of people uh, think about that album too. So I, I feel like, um, you know, it, it I, mine is not the necessarily the most representative uh, take on his catalog. I wonder, and maybe you won't have any insight on this, but I wonder if it's been interesting for the band to see him blow up. I, I, yeah, I, I would imagine it's, it's been very fulfilling for them. I know that they're all still friends. Um, I saw them at Shoals Fest and at, which is the, um, festival music festival that Jason, uh, organizes every year and they came out and played together and, uh, actually Slobberbone was there too. And Patterson came out and played with Slobberbone and, um, was Centromatic at that one as well? Yeah, Centromatic was there too. God, I love them. Isbell sat in with Centromatic when I saw them, I, ironically, at Mercy Lounge, again in Nashville on their farewell tour. Oh, wow. Isbell sat in the whole time, didn't know the songs. They just showed him the chords before every song really quick, and he just <laughs> killed every one of them. Wow. I mean, they were amazing, and it's sort of like, it's kind of not, it's, it's sort of a late afternoon the sun's starting to set on the river and syndromatics playing and will johnson's voice is is broadcasting all over uh all you know all over the grounds and it, it was a pretty dramatic set i'm so jealous i i love syndromatic and will solo as well yeah i mean one of my favorite local shows was he played a a local record store called landlocked here in, in Bloomington. And he just got up there with a guitar and a chair, no microphone, no nothing and played. And his voice carries so much. It was like he was singing for a place that was twice as big. And it was just spellbinding. I mean, it was just amazing. Yeah. I've seen him do a few house shows uh, without a PA or anything. And his command of a room the way he's able to gauge, you know, volume for the size. It's, it's totally impressive. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm really fortunate. I got to see Centromatic. Uh, I didn't think that would happen. <laughs> what has it been like promoting this book during this stage of the pandemic? Have you been able to do a traditional book tour? You know, I wouldn't say a book tour, but I have been able to do some, dates here and there. Um, I did one in Birmingham at a um, record store called Seasick Records, which is a really amazing uh, store down there. And Patterson and Cooley came and played a short set. So I did a reading and then they played a short set afterwards. And I got to say I opened for the truckers and, and like 
it's downhill from there. Uh, <laughs> I, my life. Um, I did a, a, a signing at the Memphis listening lab at, at Crosstown there. I love that place, which was really amazing. It's unbelievable. And I have to say <clears throat> it was just like all these things kind of, um, hitting all at once because that place is amazing and I love Crosstown and I always I wished I had lived in Memphis while Crosstown was a thing because that was such an amazing place but it was hosted by um, Burke's Bookstore which obviously as I mentioned a minute ago was like kind of where my writing career started and and I consider Corey Messler a, a, a mentor of mine as a, as a writer so that was special and then the librarian from Rhodes stopped by, <clears throat> excuse me, to buy a copy of the book to put in the Rhodes library. So, you know, I got to, I'm, I'm now, um, you know, the, the book is, is, is in circulation at the, at the library at my alma mater. So it's just like these three things coming together. It was really amazing. Since I have a rock writer from pitchfork, on the horn, I have to ask, uh, this is going to run in January, so do you have any year-in-review, best-of-2021 type picks you can throw at me and the audience? Best of 2021. Um, you know, it's weird. I feel like of all my years doing this and making year-in lists, this is the year that I feel the most disconnected, that my... I, I realize my picks are typically pretty esoteric anyway, but this is the year where it definitely feels like I'm, I'm, I, I, there's a lot of stuff that I just didn't get to hear or I didn't get to spend enough time with to connect with, but stuff that has been bouncing around my turntable is definitely that Faye Webster record. I think that's one of my favorites of the year. Uh, it's called, I know I'm funny. Ha ha. It's, <clears throat> it's really, uh, remarkable. The sort of mix of R and B and country elements that kind of fit together in an interesting way. And then I think she writes like a lot like Vic chestnut. I mean, I think she's, she's got a certain kind of phrasing and a certain kind of Southernness and a certain kind of perspective that really reminds me of, uh, of a lot of his stuff, especially his early stuff. Um, I love that Janet Simpson record. I, I'm really excited about that record. Um, I actually got to have coffee with her in Birmingham, uh, a few weeks ago, all because she came to the signing at seasick records and I was a little starstruck cause I love that record. I love the delicate cutters. I never got, I've never met her or seen her play live. And so I was really excited to meet her and she bought a book and she was the last person in line. And I've been asking people their name, making sure I didn't misspell anybody's name. And so Janet is at the tail end of the line. She hands me her book to sign and my mind goes blank and I cannot remember her name. And I've, I had a friend in college named Laura Simpson. So I just wrote to Laura, thanks for all the great tunes, blah, blah, blah. And gave it to her and she kind of had this look on her face like like odd look and and i realized about an hour later that i had signed it to the wrong person 
And I was mortified and I was texting her and I was like going through her website, emailing her and everything. And, and you know, she's, she's awesome. She, she was handled it with very good humor and <laughs> she signed my copy of safe distance. I, I took that to, to have her to sign and she signed it to Michael. So we're even now. Nice. Yeah. We were supposed to play a show together last year, but we had to cancel it for COVID reasons, which really sucked. Oh man, that does suck. Yeah. Yeah, I'm. I would love to see her perform. I, I these songs on Safe Distance, I think, are really remarkable. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of curious to see how they translate. Yeah, the the band that that played with the Drive By Truckers also used to play with Janet's old band Teen Getaway a bunch, and they're they're a really good band of hers. Also, if you haven't listened to them. You know, I don't think I've gone that far back. Uh, I think I go back as far as like Delicate Cutters, which was, uh, and I don't know why I never went further back, it, you know, but I will. I'm going to write that down. Well, this has been fun, Stephen. Thanks so much for doing this. Uh, I've enjoyed the book and I've enjoyed talking to you. Well, I appreciate it. It's, it's um, you know, as somebody who's read your byline and listened to this podcast a lot. It's a real honor to be here and, and I've had a blast myself. So, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. That's the show. Thank you to Stephen Dusner. Thank you to Arthur with two H's for the opening theme. Thank you to Joey Pegram for the closing theme. Thank you for listening. For music, news, and episode archives, visit backtothelight.net. And until next time, take care, y'all. Back to the Light podcast network at backtothelight.net.